Today on the ESG Beat, I'd like to welcome Professor Elizabeth Pullman, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Pullman is an expert in corporate law and corporate governance. In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will be discussing her recent working paper, The Corporate Governance Machine, co-authored with Professor Dorothy Lund. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Elizabeth. Thanks, Amelia. Glad to be here with you. I'm so excited to share your most recent working paper, The Corporate Governance Machine, which you co-authored with Professor Dorothy Lund. Let's start with the question you're asking, which relates to corporate purpose. As you know, the debate about corporate purpose is raging at the moment. In its simplest form, scholars are duking out whether corporate purpose should be aligned with shareholder primacy or stakeholder governance. Can you tell us how corporate law scholars have traditionally approached this debate and how your paper takes a different or a systems-level view, which I thought was very novel. Yeah, so the, the debate about corporate purpose has been heating up, and corporate law scholars have tended to focus on the relevant law to the debate. So for example, they tend to analyze and argue about whether corporate law dictates shareholder primacy as corporate purpose, and whether corporate directors have a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value. And corporate law scholars have taken different views of the positive law, what the law requires, and of the normative issue of what the law should require. Uh, And as I've been studying this issue for the past several years, it struck me that as a descriptive matter, our system of corporate governance for U.S. public corporations is made up of law, but it's also made up of markets and culture. And seeing this meta or bigger picture view is important because corporations make decisions about their operations and activity based on law, markets, and culture. And the law is important, but it's part of a dynamic system. So to me, I saw the stickiness of shareholder primacy in our system, such that proposals for incremental legal change seemed incomplete or perhaps uh, unlikely to succeed. And so Dorothy Dorothy Lund and I had this great conversation about this a while ago and decided to collaborate to write this paper. It's a working paper that aims to give this systems level descriptive account of US public company governance and how each of the components, law, markets, and culture are oriented towards shareholders and how they work together. Uh, So that's the corporate governance machine. It's the combined workings of Delaware corporate law, Congress, the SEC, the stock exchanges, the stock indices, proxy advisors, rating agencies, influential investors, investor and trade associations, plus culture as reflected in professional education uh, that we participate in um, as law professors and also um, uh, our colleagues in the business schools, media and politics. Uh, And so many of us that are active in this space, we see many of these players and these elements, and what we're trying to do is put it together in a way that we can understand um, this as a system and how that explains what we're seeing and why there's a stickiness to shareholder primacy. I couldn't agree with you more. Corporate governance is highly contextual and systems-based, and all of the actors that you point to in your paper influenced corporate governance or the corporate governance machine and its orientation towards shareholder primacy. But before we discuss corporate governance, let's be really clear about defining that term, uh, which you do in your paper. Uh, You go into the etymology and the history of the term corporate governance. Can you please share that with us? That was one of my favorite parts of the paper. Yeah, so of course, as long as there's been corporations, there's been corporate governance, even if it wasn't called that. So going back hundreds of years to the Dutch East India Company, there were conflicts between directors and shareholders. 
And Adam Smith wrote about the problems that arise when managers oversee other people's money, et cetera. All of that, of course, there's been corporate governance. Um, but what we're thinking about in this beginning part of the paper is about how that term has been used, corporate governance, um, more recently um, and how it's uh, risen in the usage alongside uh, shareholder privacy thinking. So um, legal historians tend to pinpoint the 1920s and 30s as the kind of foundational era for corporate governance. But the term wasn't actually used during that time period. It was the the events that were taking place and the changes in corporations and stock trading um, and, and other historical facts and developments of that time that legal historians are pointing to, um, such as the, the rapid increase in the number of small shareholders and the arrival of a professionalized class of corporate managers to oversee um, what we now think of as more large modern corporations. Um, and that brought about debate about the separation of stock ownership and managerial control and that classic stuff like William Ripley's uh, Main Street and Wall Street book and Burley and Means book, The Modern Corporation and Private Property and Burley and Dodd debate and then the Great Depression and federal securities laws. So legal historians tend to talk about the foundational era of corporate governance in that 1920s and 30s time period for, for those reasons, because a lot of important things were happening. But if you look at just the usage of the term, that gets pinpointed to the 60s and 70s. Um, and the 60s is really early usage. So some people have pointed to um, a book that came out in 1962 by Richard Eels, who was a manager of public policy research at GE and who taught at Columbia's Business School. And he wrote a book uh, in 1962 called The Government of Corporations. And he said he was offering the first general treatment of the subject of corporate governance. And he was emphasizing, uh, quote, the importance of constitutionalism as applied to business polities. So he, the term seemed to have stemmed from an analogy between the government and the corporation. And the new construction of corporate governance was expressing this notion that limitations on corporate power or misconduct could come through internal checks, like a system of government or governance. And uh, Mariana Parklander has cited uh, the New York Times first usage of the term as in 1972 um, and the first usage in the Federal Register just a few years after that. So it seems there was some early usage in the 60s like this um, Richard Eels book and then in the 70s you start to see usages in more common uh, contexts like the New York Times or the Federal Register. And we point out that it's likely you know, not a coincidence that the term got used more, um, more widely during that time period because in the 70s, there was an era of corporate scandals. It came to light that hundreds of public uh, corporations had engaged in misconduct, uh, most notably Penn Central. At the time, it was the largest bankruptcy in US history. The stock market was producing dismal returns. Um, so this period of the 1970s, it was filled with um, corporate scandals and also uh, concerns. So you had people like Melvin Eisenberg publishing um, a book that set out the legal structure of the corporation and criticized the. it was really just an empty formality uh, that the shareholders were electing the directors and the board of directors were not playing a powerful role in corporations to play a check on this type of corporate misconduct. But you also had people like Ralph Nader at the same time in the 70s publishing um, Taming the Giant Corporation, arguing that corporate governance should better resemble a corporate democracy so that you could have more corporate accountability. So there were different ideas about what you were trying to achieve through more corporate accountability or governance. 
um, that were being debated and um, discussed at the time in the 1970s, and so you started to see the term getting used more and more. We point out that alongside that usage of the term corporate governance was the rise of shareholder primacy and agency cost thinking. So quickly after the usage of the term corporate governance was the emergence of this normative overlay of what would good governance be. Um, and that quickly became understood widely as reducing agency costs. So for example, in 1976, Jensen and Meckling published the principal agent model, envisioning the shareholders as principal and discussing agency costs in the corporate hierarchy. And then by 1982, you had Dan Fischel using the term in his piece, The Corporate Governance Movement, and he argued that, quote, as residual claimants on the firm's income stream, shareholders want their agents, the firm's managers, to maximize wealth. So within a few years, you started to have both the term corporate governance widely used and thinking about what would be good governance. Uh, oriented towards shareholders. Like any machine, of course, the corporate governance machine needs fuel to keep going. Can you describe how law, markets, and culture fuel that machine? And can you provide a couple of uh, examples of each type of fuel? Sure. Um, so in our paper, we have a lot more details and examples about what we see as the various components in law, markets, and culture. Um, but to start with law, of, of course, it's it's not only Delaware corporate law, but Delaware corporate law plays an important role. Um, uh, and we also highlight, however, that the SEC and Congress are also contributing to shareholder orientation in the law. And, you know, I think that point has been made um, by others before, but bringing it together so that you can see that it's, it's not simply a question of um, uh, Delaware acting in the shadow of, of federal intervention, for example, but it's really it's really goes down to the core of things that you see, for example, with the establishment of the SEC, what it said at the time was its mission going back to the 30s. It, it's always said that it's been about protecting investors, and that's set a path in the law with, with this overlay, the federal overlay of the SEC. Um, that has been very significant and, and important in the path of what the law is doing on top of the, the really foundational Delaware corporate law. Um, and we have some examples that, that show that even sometimes when you think about counterexamples, it kind of shows the underlying point. Like we, we talk about, for example, the conflicts mineral provision of Dodd-Frank. And so there you see an example where Congress put into law something that was clearly about humanitarian goals. Um, regarding the governance of public corporations. And you would say, like, that's an example where you see, like, that isn't just about shareholders. However, when you look at what the reaction was to it, then you see the corporate governance machine in action because you, then you see, ah, well then quickly trade associations and others started to challenge it, courts ruled against it, the agency itself stepped back, and, and so you start to see how the players come and give life to the law in a way that pushes back against something that isn't oriented towards shareholders. Uh, so that's, that's just a little snippet on the law, but there's, there's much more. It's, it's quite a rich discussion, of course, on the law. Um, on markets, you know, again, it's, it's funny because the project isn't normative. We're not trying to tell you what to think, and we're not trying to malign any of these participants in our system of corporate governance. Um, in some ways, we're trying to illuminate uh, the, the breadth of our system and, and the various participants. And um, so for markets, 
we call it markets, but of course what we mean is something broader than just the exchanges, though the exchanges are a player and they themselves are subject to oversight by the SEC, which again creates a dynamic that orients in a certain way. Um, but we talk, for example, about proxy advisors and rating agencies in detail about how their various policies state orientations towards shareholders um, and influential investors and their associations, for example, CII, and we give some examples about when they step in. Um, uh, and for example, uh, just thinking about recent developments that I'm sure um, uh, you've been talking and thinking about, the, the business roundtable statement, for example, provoked a, a reaction very quickly from CII to state what its view was. Um, and so you start to see how um, these different participants in what we call the corporate governance machine push back on each other when it strays from a shareholder orientation. Uh, and then uh, going to culture, <laughs> um, we talk about professional education and uh, politics and also media. And um, to your question about media, this is something that Lynn Stout pointed out some years ago. Um, and I think she did it very crisply which is to say that one thing about shareholder primacy is that it's easy to explain. And agency cost thinking in general about corporations is easy to explain. Because if you think about the shareholders as the principal or the owners, then the rest very quickly flows from there and people can easily understand that framing um, and why something would be good or bad. And um, so, What's happened with the media is that not always, but often the media has adopted this language. And what we're pointing out is it's not neutral. So even going back to, you know, like the 80s, these terms like corporate raiders and uh, what was going on in the markets and whether it was good or bad for shareholders, um, that's not neutral. It's a way of thinking about what's going on in corporations um, that embeds shareholder primacy thinking. We've talked a lot about how we're at a crossroads. Do you think that we're at a tipping point for shareholder primacy? So many corporate actors, as you've noted, are shifting away from it. So how does the corporate governance machine respond to that? Is it being pulled away from shareholder primacy? Yeah, so this is the big question, and it's, it's one that we're still researching and pondering because when you're in the moment, it's hard to know if what you're seeing is the tipping point or not. Um, because we won't know until much later, I think, uh, what's, what's, really, what's really happening. And in some ways, it's really hard to pinpoint causality in these stories. So part of what we're doing is descriptive tracing and synthesizing, um, but it's actually quite hard, um, even when you're living it, to say exactly what causes what um, and when there's been a true change. Um, but part of what we've observed in this time is that once we've, we started to think about the system, we started to notice, for example, with the business roundtable statement as an example, that um, uh, as soon as the statement was made, all the players that we started to dis that we discussed in the paper started to react, and they reacted in predictable ways. Actually, some people, corporate law scholars, um, reasserted uh, long-standing views that they've had and tried to push things back towards the way that they had seen it. Uh, Trade associations, investor associations also made statements that tried to uh, keep it in, in the way that they had seen um, the, the best orientation. And uh, the companies themselves, you know, are being watched to see if they're actually 
changing their operation, which I think is uh, an important point of reference too, to think about how much is rhetoric in, of, that goes on in the system that we have. And we're just reiterating the debates that we've had for a long time in some sense, and what's actually changing in corporate behavior. And so I think we're still watching to see if we're really at a tipping point, but um, so far what we've seen is ex exactly what we would expect with the players all reiterating their stances and the stickiness of the system holding so far. Um, and we see that in part with changing language, but not changing behavior. And so, for example, one of the things that we talk about as an example of corporate governance in action is the shift from corporate social responsibility to ESG. And um, I'm happy to talk more about that, but um, with the reframing of corporate social responsibility towards ESG, ESG itself has been oriented towards risk-adjusted return for shareholders, and that's an acceptable way about, of talking about doing things for stakeholders. And that's just a reframing back towards shareholder interests, um, whether you say it's over the long term or producing value in some sense or adjusting risk, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's not the same conversation that had been happening some decades ago about social responsibility in moral terms and as trade-offs against shareholders. This is a business case for doing things for stakeholders, which is still an orientation towards shareholders. And so until we see something that's actually not just still doing the stuff for shareholder value, it would seem that we haven't truly come to a tipping point. Um, but we're watching closely because it's, it's an important question. You know, We haven't always had the system that we have. So part of what's happened is that since we started using the term corporate governance, and since these developments in the 70s towards shareholder orientation, we've had a, a growth of what corporate governance is into a system with more players, with more, um, frankly, business being done uh, as an industry of corporate governance. And so that's, that's a modern development um, that hasn't always existed. And so we're, we're looking back to previous times, um, for example, when managerialism shifted to shareholder primacy and even earlier to try to think about, well, what catalyzed changes in the past and would we expect it to be, require something similar um, now? And we don't have great answers yet for that question besides these observations about how the system is currently working. Um, but I think that's the important question for people who care about change to be thinking about what, what would it require um, so that it isn't uh, rhetoric happening um, on repeat instead of it effectuating real change. Let's talk a bit more about the corporate governance machine in action and examples of that. Now, you've already given us a glimpse into that when you've described the move from CSR to ESG, with CSR being an orientation that wasn't linked to shareholder value and ESG being very much about risk-adjusted returns for shareholders, whether in the short term or in the long term. What are some other examples? Uh, what are examples of the, sh the corporate governance machine really pulling us towards an orientation of shareholder primacy? The, the point that we make at, at core is simply that through this system of corporate governance with law, markets, and culture, we've arrived at a system regarding board composition in which a majority of public company boards 
is independent, and we have a, a widespread usage of independence for public company boards. Even though we have companies in varying industries and we don't have empirical evidence that conclusively finds that that produces value. So we point out, well, the, the reason why we see this though is because we have this system in which in the 70s we started to have um, a shift from thinking about corporate boards as trustees or advisors that would help the corporation implement a, a, a business and social mission um, to uh, a thinking about the board as uh, playing a monitoring role. And that was quickly embraced. And so uh, with the corporate scandals of the 1970s, there was reason to quickly embrace it. People were looking for positive change to those problems and for more corporate accountability. So Eisenberg and others thinking of monitoring um, or a monitoring board was quickly embraced by the American Law Institute um, in its draft principles of corporate governance. The chairperson of the SEC and the ABA Committee on Corporate Laws um, embraced this articulation of board's responsibilities, this monitoring role. Um, then the hostile takeover wave of the 1980s further solidified that thinking and that development. And um, then once you got towards the collapse of Enron and WorldCom, you had Congress taking action, for example, with Sarbanes-Oxley. And then the New York Stock Exchange convened a corporate governance task force. So you had all these various players that continually moved along the board composition towards independence. And um, what you end up with is basically public company boards that look very similar across companies, even though the companies themselves might be in widely different areas of business and have different, uh, different circumstances and needs. Um, and so we point out that, that that came about systematically because of these various um, players and the stickiness of this idea of, of thinking about the board as monitors because of uh, agency cost model and shareholder primacy thinking. Yet another very nuanced and astute observation about the corporate governance machine and action that you make in your paper relates to the new corporate forms. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, we, we use the example of benefit corporations. There's been a range of new forms like L3Cs and others, but benefit corporations has been the one that's um, uh, achieved the most legislative success. Um, so we point out that there's been ideas about stakeholder governance for, for a long time, of course, um, and uh, the constituency statutes that many states have are an example of that. They've allowed uh, corporations that are formed in, in those states that have a constituency statute to be permitted to consider stakeholder interests in making their decisions, and the statute clarifies that. Um, uh, however, those statutes have, have been criticized as um, not effectuating very much change because they're only permissive and um, not all states have adopted such statutes. And the ideas behind them have, have continued since that time, um, since the 80s. And uh, people in the social enterprise movement have taken them up in different ways. And uh, one primary example of that are the uh, people involved in uh, pushing forward benefit corporation legislation. And um, the B-Lab nonprofit has been the, the primary first mover on that and an important catalyst. And um, they're a group that started with dissatisfaction with 
the existing system and specifically shareholder primacy, as they've stated. And they wanted to um, create a new form to show that business could be a force for social good. And what we point out is that in doing so, they, they chose to create a different form outside of the traditional corporation. And we point out that it's the system of corporate governance that we have that has made that necessary in a sense, or has um, uh, pushed them in that strategic direction outside of, of traditional corporate law, because it's so difficult in some sense to change um, the existing standards and ideas that we have embedded in a conventional, people would even say a regular corporation. Um, and so around the same time as corporate social responsibility was being transformed into thinking about value maximizing ESG, this nonprofit B-Lab pushed state legislatures across the country to add a new form of business organization to their corporate codes, and over 30 states have adopted them. Um, and um, at, at the same time, while that, that sounds like it's been really significant change, um, it's happened outside of the traditional corporate form. And so there's only so far a few thousand uh, corporations formed as benefit corporations. And they're still subject to the corporate governance machine to the extent that they want to go on public markets, etc. So it's been an, an, a notable change, but it's been a change for stakeholder governance that's occurred outside of the traditional corporate form because of the dominance of the system that we have. Okay, so you've convinced us the corporate governance machine is in action, but why does any of this matter, Elizabeth? I mean, what are what are the implications of the corporate governance machine that should worry us? Yeah, so we think there's there's a lot of different implications. Um, one is the one that we've been discussing that um, because we have this system that ha- that's composed of law, markets, and culture, it makes it hard to change um, away from a shareholder orientation. And this is why I think many people have been making um, recommendations that focus on changing shareholder or investor behavior because that takes as a given our, the system that we have and the power structures within it. Um, and so that's, uh, that's one of the core implications. But there's other implications. So for example, even though in the corporate governance debates we often say one size doesn't fit, fit all, in fact, when you look at public company governance, because of this system, it's often pushing companies towards one-size-fits-all governance. Um, and an example of that is this pushback against dual-class stock that we've seen, for example. Um, with a lot of tech company IPOs trying to go public with dual-class stock, we've also seen a, a public market pushback on that. And that's another example of an implication that we have, is that with this system, it's... Um, somewhat hostile towards other stru- governance structures that would, that would not be uh, the traditional shareholder orientation um, in the way that the public company uh, markets expect. And um, related to that is the uh, point that this may be also contributing to private companies not wanting to be on the public markets. Um, because if they want to operate or have a culture that's different um, it becomes harder to operate uh, on public markets. And um, there's notable examples of companies that have done some things differently. Um, or companies like Salesforce, for example, has been uh, pretty outspoken about trying to do some things differently on public markets. And you see private companies trying to navigate that time period towards publicness, um, like Airbnb recently. Um, so those are, in a sense, Examples of what we're talking about about the implications is that because we have this system, you st- you have to s- you see examples that act in these ways when they want to do things differently, 
Um, uh, so, so those are some of the implications that, that we discussed in the paper. I think it's also possible that this is, in a, another sense, um, diminishing innovation that we see in corporate governance and potentially in companies themselves. I always like to end the ESG beat with a magic wand and a crystal ball. Let's start with the magic wand. If you could wave your wand and change something about the corporate governance machine, what would that be? And then move on to the crystal ball and tell us where you see us headed. Well, the paper that Dorothy Lennon and I are writing isn't um, a normative paper. So in the paper itself, we don't discuss um, what the system should be. In a sense, we're bringing together um, a description of what it is and trying to help show how it's dynamic and how it, how it shifts things in, in um, our system of corporate governance. So my, my magic wand isn't in the paper in a sense. <laughs> and um, I'm not sure that I, um, that I have a big normative argument to make. Um, but what I hope the paper does is empowers people that are pushing for change in various ways um, and pushing for corporations to play a positive role in society, to um, take a, a, a account of the system and so that they um, are better um, aware of the types of um, frictions that might be uh, preventing obstacles to the sorts of change that they would like to see in the world. And I think it could improve the debate um, to, um, to expand out from uh, legal debates to also include the markets and the culture in a more, in a more nuanced way. Um, and for the crystal ball, uh, though I can't, I, again, I'm not speaking for Dorothy, though I'd love to know what she thinks too. For the crystal ball, we're, we're not sure if this is the tipping point, but what we've seen is far greater discussion um, than we've ever seen before. And with ESG specifically, because it's the ESG beat, I would say that we're in a time where we don't have a very um, uh, precise definition of ESG because people are using the term in so many different ways. And so given that, it's hard to have a crystal ball, um, but um, I think that we may see um, potentially more of the same given the stickiness of the system that we're describing, unless uh, there is a fuller grappling with, um, with a systematic change at a, at a much far greater um, level than people are often discussing because it would require changing um, not just aspects of law potentially but also aspects of what shareholders do and um, whether or not uh, culture is embracing a different uh, way of talking about corporations a way of educating um, about roles of directors and executives etc so crystal ball is unclear um, but it, uh, we really are seeing much more activity in the ball than ever before, it seems. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the ESG Beat with us today. And I'm excited to see where the corporate governance machine is headed. Thanks so much, Amelia. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG Beat with me today.